0: 1 Samuel chapter 13, this is the story of Saul who had uh, been appointed king by God and he had failed to pursue the heart of God and it cost him, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13 starting in verse 5 if you'll stand for the reading of the word, amen, Father we just ask your blessing on this word and help us to grasp it, apply it, Holy Spirit anoint it, it's the only thing that gives it life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen people as the sand, which is the seashore multitude. And they came up and they encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethhaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rockets, rocks, in holes and in pits. They had been dispatched by God to encounter this enemy. When they saw the magnitude of the enemy, they got scared. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. The prophet had said, Wait seven days, and I'll be there. We'll make an offering, and you'll win the battle. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul let his fear overtake him. And he made a burnt offering and a peace offering here. Uh, Saul said, "Bring the burnt offering and the peace offering here to me." And he offered the burnt offering, which was not his job to do. And now what happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, "What have you done?" And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me that you, and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made a supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, for you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man who is after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over the people, because you have not kept the Lord's what the Lord had commanded you. May God add His blessing to reading the Word. You may be seated. So this seems like not a big infraction. He got scared. But the truth of the matter is, when you enter into a season of disruption, and you enter into a season where all the things that you thought you had everything figured out and you thought you had a good game plan, but something comes along and it disrupts everything, and now you're not sure of anything. If you haven't become a man who has a habit or a woman who has a habit of pursuing the heart of God continuously in the good times and in the bad times, if that's not something that's part of your makeup, that's part of your, your DNA, is that you're desperate for the heart of God. You don't, uh, not, 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 just to be, not just to be in his presence, but, but you really want to understand his heart and you pursue that, then you will find in those times of uncertainty there's a steadiness that overtakes you. There's a confidence that you have. There's a faith that you have. But if your relationship with Christ is about three miles wide and half an inch deep, when you get into those seasons of uncertainty, you make mistakes and you do things in fear that cost you. David had become a man who was after God's own heart. And so I want to look at some things that David did with his life that we can learn from. Number one, we've got to come out of the world. In, in, we, we're, we, we're in the world, but we can't be of the world. John seventeen fifteen and 16 said, I don't pray. Jesus said, I don't pray that you should take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen, we have to quit trying to blend in with the world and make the gospel more palatable to them. You know, I saw an illustration that done on an Emmaus talk one time that just stuck with me. But a young woman had taken a jar and put water and oil in it. She had mixed salad oil or some kind of an oil, vegetable oil or something, and she'd put it in there with the water, and she'd put food coloring in there so you could kind of see the distinction. And then she would shake it up, and then she would just let it set, and it didn't take but just a minute. The oil and the water would separate because chemists will tell you there's something in the molecular structure of the oil and the water that is so different that they can never absorb one another. They will always separate. And Christians who are trying to live in the world and be of the world Come on, somebody. Your DNA is different than theirs. Everywhere you go, you will separate from them, and that's the way that it's supposed to be. Now, God wants you in close proximity to them so that you can witness to them. You can't witness to them if you're not living in the same, same neighborhood, if you're not working at the same company, if you're not in the same school system, if you're not doing, playing the same sports with them. You can't be a witness until you're close to them. But you never, ever be afraid to separate from them. Come on, somebody. Because your molecular structure, your spiritual DNA will never mix with them. And if you really have been saved, born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost of Jesus, whenever you set that jar down, you will always float to the top. Always. Because you're in the world, but you're not of the world. That's okay. Too many Christians are trying to live in the world. You need to come out of that and you need to separate yourself from the world in Revelation 18:4. This is a continuous problem I can tell because Revelation 18:4 is about the last days right before Jesus comes back. And John the apostle speaks to the Babylonian system of one world government that's now rising. It's now rising that will eventually take over and be run by the Antichrist in the last days. And in Revelation 18, 4, he said, Come out of her, my people, lest you commit sin with her and partake of her plagues. Even, even then, his people are trying to live in the world and trying to blend in and be part of the world, and, and it's not going to work. And he said, You better come out of her or you're going to end up partaking in her plagues. To become an apprentice to Christ, you've got to quit the world. You have to just quit it. I'm not going to do what they do. I'm not going to. I'm not going to watch what they watch. I think I, last Sunday I told Carolyn and I have subscribed to PureFlix. And we started watching movies on that. My gosh, they're so good. And the actors are good. The scripts are good. The music is good. It's all good. Why would I want to watch a movie full of half-naked women when I can actually watch something that will build me up spiritually and make me stronger and, and, and will encourage me? Come on, somebody. Pure Flix is not. It says right on there. It, they need to put a, in a caption underneath it say, if you're of the world, stay out of here because you're not going to like it. Come on, somebody. They're not supposed to like it because they're not of the same Make up that we are amen I don 't need to be culturally relevant. I need to be relevant to God. David understood that David had a relationship with the Lord, and it was, it was a model that we can follow. He loved his presence in psalm twenty two three The word says, But you are holy, and you're enthroned on the praises of, on, on the praises of Israel. God inhabits the praises of his people, and David figured out from that passage. In, in, in Psalms, that he could draw God out with praise. And so when he was a young boy out in the sheepfold with his guitar just out there in the moonlight just watching sheep at night, he would begin to praise God, and he realized that God's presence would begin to show up. And he used that over and over again any time he needed to enter into the presence of God. He gave him a sacrifice of praise. Come on, somebody. He praised him when it was hard to do, and he knew that God would always respond to that. David figured out pretty quick how to enter into the presence. But I want to point out something to you. He was not referred to as the man who loved the presence of God. He was referred to the man who was after God's own heart. I know a lot of Christians that love the presence. Oh, the music's good. Oh, man, I mean, some of these services, I mean, some of these churches are like unbelievable. Have you seen some of the sanctuaries they have? And, and they have the very latest, and in, 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 I mean, they put on a tremendous I don't want to say show because it's not a show, but I mean, it's just they're talented. They're, they got talented musicians and great singers and, and they got a great crowd and you see those kids and they got their hands in the air and they're wound up and they're excited about Jesus. But what happens to a lot of people is, Christianity is that they fall in love with the presence, but not the heart. Come on, somebody. Everybody likes to be in that environment where you feel tingly and excited and everybody loves to be in that but that won't get you to the finish line there's a guy named joshua harris he was a pastor of a mega church in maryland had over four thousand members and he wrote a book called i've kissed dating goodbye and it was a really great book it was a book that was about courtship when a man pursues a woman it shouldn't be for dating purposes. It should be for courtship. In other words, they're, ex- they're, they're examining the potential of marriage. Are they going to be compatible? And, and, uh, and, so, and so it's a wonderful thing, and it's kind of biblical, and I thought it was a great book. Well, he writes this book. It becomes a big number one bestseller and changes the church's teaching a lot or, or updates it about, about relationships between men and women, and, and it's, it's a powerful book. But here he jumps up one day, he announces he's getting a divorce, he quits the church, he cusses it on the way out, and says he's, he is no longer a believer, and leaves the church. Well, what happened? What happened to this great guy who had this great platform? It was leading people to a real truth about relationships between men and women There had to be some revelation in there. I mean, it had the way he taught It was brilliant and all that. What happened to the guy? I can answer it in one word. No Holy Ghost. See, when you step up, to be a great leader in Christ, and you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost, your days are numbered. Listen to me. Your days are numbered. You don't have the power to stay committed. You don't have the power. And so he loved the presence. He had a great worship team. Oh, my God, there were great musicians. And he had, he had all the stuff, man. I mean, it was it an was awesome experience to go there. It was, it was just wonderful, except for the fact there was no real fear of the Lord there. There was no desperation to know the heart of God. There was no baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It's tragic. It's tragic. But when you see that happen to a great leader of a great church, check out his spiritual history. And if he says he doesn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, then don't ever try to stand up on a pulpit at a 4,000-member church and lead people to truth. Because the enemy will get you sooner or later. If you believe that, say amen. So, David spent his youth discovering the secrets of the heart of God. Not just his presence. He figured out how to enter his presence, but he wanted to know more about God. His life is a great model, and we've got to follow it. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, the Lord said, but he who has the key of David, say key of David, He who has the key of David he is he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. He's speaking to the church, the faithful church at Philadelphia. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and nobody can shut it. And you have little strength and you have kept my word. You've been committed to my word. You've not compromised my word. And you have not denied my name. You've not denied my nature. You've not denied my teaching. You've not denied my my ministry. You've not denied any of that. You've held fast to that. And he says to that church, he said, you have the key of David. And the key of David is this. It is a open door before heaven. It's an open door to heaven. That's what it is. So how did David acquire this key that we can actually inherit and we can also operate in? He made a science out of touching the heart of God. Knowing the heart of God and touching the heart of God. So here's some secrets to the heart of God. Number one, David maintained a conversational relationship with God. Listen, I hear some people pray, and I can go right away. I go, that brother's not been baptized in the Holy Ghost. Thou art the great king of the universe. You've heard Roger do it. He does it better than I do because he used to be religious. Roger used to be religious. I was always a sinner. I just went from sinner to baptized in the Holy Ghost, so I got to bypass all of that stuff. But my point is, is that they start those wordy prayers. You ever been around anybody like that? And when they pray for grace, you go, man, can you just finish? I'm hungry. I mean, there's no anointing on it. Come on, somebody. Am I, am I going to get in trouble? Probably, yes. I probably am going to get in trouble. But, but you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing from the heart there. There's no, there's no real anointing on it. David developed a conversational relationship with God. He would ride and see the enemy down along the valley, and he would stop and say, wait a minute. He would get on his knees and say, God, do I attack the enemy? And God would say, yeah, here's how I want you to do it. You circle around to the back. You circle around the back. You draw them out. and then you." God would give him a battle plan. They had a conversational. If you're not coming to our Wednesday night meeting, you need to come because we're learning how to hear God. And already this week, I have so many reports from people in this deal. You know what? God is showing me something in ways I never dreamed of. I'm beginning, they're beginning Beginning to hear from him, he, he's been speaking all along in God in your prayer life. When you pray, it's not a one way, it's not a one way prayer where you come get before God. It's how about if you sit before God? How about if you worship God and you sit before God and then you say, God, here I am, what do you want to show me? Instead, of, and you begin to do it. If you God said, God said, we have a relationship that's intimate. How can you have an intimate relationship without having a conversation with somebody? Amen. So he developed a conversational way of praying to God. And God responded to it. David had respect for God. Listen, Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. David was a great warrior because he listened to God's instruction. And he did it things the way God wanted him to do it because he had a healthy Healthy fear of the Lord. I didn't know fear could be healthy. Proverbs eight thirteen says the fear of the Lord is that to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now I want to talk to you about fear a little bit because this word fear, I want you to, I want you, it's not like terror, it's like respect. You have to have a little respect for somebody. If you're going to be in a relationship with, with them, you have to have respect for them, do you not? This, this cheap grace message that's been preached all around the world here, I'm for grace, I need grace, I want grace, and I thank God for the rhythms of grace in my life. But I have an obligation when I receive grace to worship the one who extended it to me and to begin to try to live my life in the fear, in the respect, in the awe of the Lord. I don't care what men say, I care what Jesus said. That's what I live by, because I have a fear, I have a healthy fear of the Lord. And there's a great prophet, his name is Chris Reed, you need to write him down. He's a rising prophet in the body of Christ after the ashes of the shaking. Chris Reed is gonna rise to the top as one of the great prophets in the ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth and to the American church. And he had a word the other day that I sent our leaders that lit me up like a Christmas tree. And he said, when the fear of the Lord returns to the church, the power will return. When the fear of the Lord returns to the church, he said the power will return. Go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 11. You have a, a meeting and, and they've all seen the power and they've seen the manifestation of the power of God in the church in its early days. They all sold their stuff and they gave it, they gave it to the church. Everybody says, so is that the tithing? back then, everybody said, oh, you know, there's no, no New Testament tithing. I said, oh yeah, Acts 5, it was 100%. That's, that's what I get, crickets, whenever I hear it say that to somebody. It's 100% and they say, well, what I actually, the Holy Spirit knew the Romans were going to confiscate all their property. So, so they sold their property and they put it in the, the church and the church could feed people and take care of people and so on and so forth. And, and they came out, they, they were blessed on the other side of it. It didn't cost them anything. But they had sold their property, and Ananias and Sapphira had lied about selling part of their property. They had kept some of the money back. In Acts chapter 5, verse 11, said, A great fear came upon all the church and upon all, all of them who heard these things. So God basically, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and Peter said, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And God killed them right then. Right then. He dropped them like a rock right then. They took them out and buried them. I want the Holy Spirit to fall my church. Well, do you have the hearses ready? That's what a friend of mine said one time. Are you ready? Do you really want? See, see, I'm not trying to be. I don't want you to get freaked out. And we can over, we can overdo this fear of the Lord thing, and it has been overdone. But we God is not our buddy. He's our God. Come on, somebody. Yes, He loves us, but He's the Judge of the universe. And David had great respect for Him. He had great respect for the things that He taught. He had great respect for his word. So a great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things, whenever Ananias and Sapphira were killed by the Holy Spirit. And th- through the hands of the apostles then, it says immediately after that, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch, and not one of the rest of the people dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. In other words, it scared everybody. It scared the world. It scared the church. It scared There was a healthy fear that came on the church. And when that fear came, the power, power came. This is Chris Reed's word. When the power came, guess what happened? The culture began to have respect and fear for them. Come on somebody. See, this is what the church has done. It's tried to blend in and be hip. And all we've done is they've lost respect for us and we've lost respect for ourselves. Can I get a witness out of somebody? Because we've compromised everything that we believed in. But if we, if, when the fear of the Lord comes back on the church, the power will come in every place where God's name is feared. And I will guarantee you, where his presence is reverenced, and I'll guarantee what to you what will happen. They may not join us, but they will respect us. This is a word from the Lord. Quit worrying about what they think and start worrying about what I think, the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord. And when that happens, you're going to see that we'll become the ecclesia of God again, the legislative body on the earth that's supposed to have influence on the culture. They don't have influence for us because we say one thing and do another. Amen. Reed says that the power is coming when the fear of the Lord returns, and it's going to return. Now, I don't want to get... I don't want to get I don't want to get all religious about this. I don't want to be critical. Listen, I want sinners to come to church. Don't you want sinners to come to church? I want sinners to come that are desperate for something different. But I have to live my life by a different standard. I have to live differently than they live. That doesn't mean that I despise them or judge them. I love them. I want them to come. But they got to see something different in me. They have to see the fear of the Lord. The other thing that David did that I find is really not under-talked about is he observed the Sabbath. He loved the Sabbath. He understood what the Sabbath means to God. In Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. God is creating. This is the creation account. He's creating all the universe, the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because... In it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God only blessed, now, follow me now. God only blessed three things during the creative process. He loved it all. He said, man, it's pretty cool. It's cool looking. I like that. But he blessed three things. He blessed the animals. He told them to multiply and be fruitful. He blessed Adam and Eve. He told them the same thing. Now, you go and multiply and be fruitful. And he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. He blessed those three things. Now, animals have multiplied and been fruitful on the earth, and man has certainly been fruitful on the earth. But what about the Sabbath? There was a study done by a pastor of an evangelical denomination, and he studied Seventh-day Adventists. Anybody know who they are? Seventh-day Adventists are a denomination, and they basically, basically major in the Sabbath day. I mean, that's their whole thing. Their whole doctrine is built around the Sabbath day. And so, and so they observe the Sabbath uh, zealously. You know, that's part of their thing. And he said, so, so how has that worked for them? And so he did a study, he did a study over a Seventh-day Adventist down through, the, down through, the, through, the, through time and history, and he, dis- and he discovered something startling, and that is they outlive most, most people by an average of 10 years. Their average death age and the average death of the rest of the church is about 10. They live about 10 years longer. Now, that's 3,650 days for those of you that didn't do well in math. That's 3,650 days longer that they live than most other people. Now, this is what it said about the Sabbath. He, he said the others, he said, be fruitful and multiply. The Sabbath he blessed is the only th- thing that he blessed. And if you do the math, of all the Sabbaths that they kept from the time that they were a child till the time they were 70 years old, there was about, there was about that many, about 3,700, about 3,600 Sabbaths that they were zealous to keep and what happened in God's kingdom, as you sow, so shall you reap, they, just, they ended up, they lived longer. They got more days because they sanctified the seventh day. They got more days because they sanctified. You get more money because you sanctify the offering and give it to God. He multiplies it and gives it back to you. It doesn't cost you anything. To sanctify the Sabbath doesn't cost you anything, but you can gain a whole, whole lot. You can gain a whole lot from it. I thought this was fascinating. In Matthew 11, 28, and 29, we talked about this in the message version last week. I, I want to ask you this. This is what I'm going to read this scripture to you. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Jesus has come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The unforced rhythms of grace. It begins with the Sabbath. When you get and you start to observe the Sabbath the way God intended for you to, it starts to get you kind of tapped off with the unforced, unforced rhythms of grace to get you in sync with what he's doing. Walter Brueggemann said that people who keep the Sabbath live differently on the other six days. People who keep the Sabbath live differently on the other six days. David knew it was more than a commandment; he knew it was a sign. And the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter twenty says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor." And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. God spent more words in the Ten Commandments explaining this one commandment than he did all the others combined and he said for us to remember it. He said it was a sign in Exodus chapter 31, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, to the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, and to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel. And you can say, well, I'm not a Jew. Yeah, but your covenant runs through Israel. All your covenant is grounded in the covenant with Israel. In the new covenant, uh, uh, Jesus said this, he was accused of breaking the Sabbath and healing people and doing various things often. And here's what he said. The Sabbath, in, the Sabbath was made for man and man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, who is the Lord, is also the Lord over the Sabbath. And so what he's saying is, you need it. You need it. You need it. It's important. And you need it because the way I made you, you need it. And he said, don't be religious about it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I do what I want to do on the Sabbath. You don't worry about me. You worry about you and what you do on that Sabbath, seventh day. And I'm no good at this. And y'all know I'm no good at this. This is why I'm confessing here today. It was instituted for the happiness and welfare of men. The Sabbath commandment to rest is a commandment to rest and to worship. To rest and to worship. It means it, it means more than just a day off from work see that 's what we all think it's kind of this is what Eugene Peterson he said. He called the American version of the Sabbath where it is merely seen as a day off from work as the bastard Sabbath. He said the illegitimate child of the seventh day in Western culture people don 't work for their employees on the employers on the Sabbath, they work for themselves, they do other things, but they 're busy doing something on the Sabbath. Everything done on the Sabbath should measure up to two things it should be rest and it should be worship it should be rest and it should be worship so you spend time in the word on the Sabbath you do that you come and I'm speaking to I'm preaching to the choir here because you come here you're faithful to come here and we we worship and we get in the word and that's an important thing to do on the Sabbath it is but also you need to spend time with your wife you need to spend time with your family if you're having trouble, I'm just going to go out on the limb here. I'm already in trouble. I might as well get in a little bit deeper. I like it in trouble. I stay there all the time. If you're having trouble getting pregnant, then what you need to do is the way you need to observe the Sabbath is you need to have intimacy with your wife or husband, your spouse, on the Sabbath day. You know why? Because it's a day that's been appointed to fruitfulness and increase, and you're doing it God's way, and it's holy under the commandment of God. That particular thing is holy under the covenant of marriage. It's blessed by God, and it's a blessing in a holy covenant day, what better day would there be to do it? Hallelujah. That stirred some religious people up somewhere. Do you see? See, don't get religious about the Sabbath. It's about investing. It's about about stopping and resting and worshiping and taking inventory of the things God's given you. Take the kids to the park. You want to get your kids where they don't hate the church? You know, a lot of kids whose parents are really, really active in the church grow up to resent the church when they get older because the church competed for them for their parents' attention. If you observe the Sabbath, take your children to the park on the Sabbath, spend time with them. They're a blessing from God. By spending time with them on the Sabbath, you're observing the Sabbath. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And that kid will grow up loving the church because it was the church that taught his mom and dad that it was important to mark off a day to spend with them. Whenever, whenever President Trump won the election back, way back in 2016, his daughter is a converted Jew. She, is, she married a, a guy named Jared Kushner who was a Jew, a very devout Jew, and, and she had, to become, she had to, 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 to become a Jew to marry him. And so uh, a news reporter was making fun of her because on the day of the inauguration, according to the Sabbath laws, and they're very religious, and this is not what I'm selling. The Jews can get very religious about this. He couldn't drive. You couldn't drive an automobile on the Sabbath. And so <coughs> they were kind of making fun of her, and they were going, so how does that work for you? You've got to go to the ball. You have to go to all these inaugural events, and you can't even drive. Well, we talked to the rabbi, and he gave us uh, permission to go ahead and drive. And they said, what's up with this? This reporter said, what's up with this whole Judaism thing anyway? I mean, you weren't born a Jew. And she said, you know what, I've fallen in love with Judaism because of one main thing, the Sabbath. I spend the Sabbath with my husband and my kids. We live in such a hurried lifestyle, and we have so many things going, and it's a regulation that we have to, comm- to, to meet to stay in Judaism, and that's not why you should do it if you're a Christian. But she said the benefit of it is I get to spend time with Jared and my children on the Sabbath. Radios, they turn their phones off. Don't try to call a Jew on the Sabbath. He won't answer because he turns his phone off. How about that? One day a week, you turn your phone off, and you just focus on each other. Do you think it would make an impact on your life? Jesus said the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's a, here's a good one. We, gotta, we have to quit living like slaves, Let's quit living like slaves to the system. Deuteronomy 15, 5. uh, 5.15, I'm sorry, 5.15. I'd never noticed this before. But when Moses is going back over the Ten Commandments, he says it a little bit differently than God did, but I think it's even more important. He said, and remember that you were a slave when you were in the land of Egypt, which types the world and its system, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. What's he saying? You were a slave one time to the, to the world. You were in the world system and you were running on the treadmill just like everybody else. And you were in debt up to your eyeballs. And you were just trying to keep your payments t- together and not lose your car. You remember that? you remember that? That's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are anymore. And you keep the Sabbath so you can remember that ain't the way I live anymore. That's the way I lived at one time. But I have been delivered from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. And remember, he said, keep the Sabbath so you might remember you don't have to work seven days a week. A slave does. And you're not a slave. Can I get a witness out of somebody? You're not a slave. You're a priest and a king. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath so you can remember that you're not enslaved. By that anymore. The Sabbath commandment is a commandment to resist. In fact, the word Sabbath actually means stop. It means stop and delight in. It also means stop and contemplate. So it's, it's like stop and take an inventory with your children and with each other and your relationship with your wife. But it also means to stop and resist. Stop the progressive infiltration of the world into your life. God this is. This is a number one problem. It's a number one problem in the kingdom. Is that we're, we're the world just keeps, just keeps coming into our life and it keeps drawing us in. We got to do this, got to do that. James 4 7 says, Submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee. The devil's telling you, you got to work seven days a week. Not, God's not telling you that. Come on, somebody. Look, I am the king of Sabbath breakers, I'm the worst defender in here. Because it's never been in my nature not to work. That's a a stupid excuse. I'm going to stand before the Lord and say, well, I just wanted to be a hard worker. You ain't nothing but a slave. And I paid a tremendous price for you to come out of that and come into freedom. You know what else they've proven? If you work 50 hours a week, you get just as much done if you work 80 hours a week. That 30 hours a week that you work, you're... Tail off, you're just hiding. You're hiding from something. You don't want to go home. Men, are, men hide out and work all the time. Come on, somebody. I've done it for years. I don't need to work 80 hours a week. I need to observe the Sabbath. I need to resist the world continuing to intrude on who I am and what God is doing in my life. We have become the most emotionally exhausted and psychologically overworked spiritually malnutri- malnourished people in history because of this treadmill that we're living on. It shows in our culture. It shows in our hurried lives. We've got to live different than the world. Ronald Rolheiser is a famous Catholic educator, and he said, "So much of our unhappiness comes from comparing our lives and our friendships and our loves and our commitments and our duties, and our bodies and our sexuality and our to some idolized non-Christian vision of things, which falsely assures us that there can have we can have heaven here on earth. When that ha- happens, and it always does, our tensions begin to drive us mad, and in this case." To a cancerous restlessness, man. I see so many people. I see so many people that are just nervous. They're anxious. They're restless. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I got to work four jobs because I don't know what's going to happen. Well, what's already happened is you've com- you, you've committed to slavery. I'm really stomping on a lot of toes here today. <laughs> Look, it, I'm not here, you don't got to you, got to, you have to have this commitment that you're going to carry the yoke of Jesus because it's the easy yoke. In Matthew 11, 28 and 30, again, again, out of the Message Bible, I love this. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I show you how to really rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. This is what it says in Matthew 11, 29, 30 in the New King James, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. but I can't, if I'm gonna take his yoke on me, and if I'm gonna have that peace and I'm gonna have that restedness, and I'm gonna have that 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 shalom in my life, I have to fear him, and I have to do what he says to do. Amen. I want to encourage you. Many of you are coming out of a lifestyle, I know who you are, and you're trying to come out of that lifestyle of busyness and hurriedness and running and and you're tired and you're burned out, and you want to come into that rest, and you're trying to keep a Sabbath, and I appreciate that. But don't think of it as a day off. In fact, most people say, you know, I do what I want to do on my day off. Well, see, if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, the day don't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And don't get get messed up on what day that is. I can't take a Sabbath on Sunday. I have to work. But I can keep a Sabbath on Monday, or try to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I realize how terrible I have been at this, and it's starting to show. Eugene Peterson said that if a minister will not observe a Sabbath, he won't last in ministry. And you know what? I believe he's absolutely right. I've been doing this long enough. I absolutely see what he's talking about. Amen. I just want to smell the roses. I want to enjoy life. I don't want to be in bondage to Egypt. I don't want to become religious about the Sabbath either. I don't, want to make it about, I don't want to make it about, you know, I don't want to be in trouble if I go watch the Super Bowl. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl, but it's not my Sabbath. So if that's a problem, it's a problem for you. It's not a problem for me, L.A. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. But is it a day that you have devoted to each other, married couples? Is it a day that you said, this is our day together? I've never, ever, ever, Carol can vouch for this. I've never been good at this. I've got to be, because I need the peace, man. I need that. I want that unhurriedness. I have to ruthlessly drive out hurriedness from my life if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Since I made that statement last week, I've had three or four crises that I've had to deal with that, I catch my blood pressure going up. I feel my anxiety going up. I go, "What? I got to hurry and get over here. Got to do this. Got to do that." Wait a minute. I don't live like that anymore. I'm going to trust God. It's going to be all right. Is this ministering to anybody? I want you to enjoy everything that God has for you, and the Sabbath is one of the biggest deals. It's a deal. It can be a great time for you, a great time for your family. You know, I've, there's an interesting thing. I was going to save it for Father's Day, and you'll forget by then so I can use it again. But <laughs> all of the great philosophers that the atheist, current atheist leftist people love to quote uh, that were against the church and against Christianity, all of them had this one unique problem, and that is they had a horrible relationship with their natural father and they never received the love and demonstration of love from a father when they were boys growing up they never felt like a son and so when you preach a religion about becoming a son to the creator of the universe they just they just wipe, wipe it off as just Rubbish, because it was never their experience. And Nietzsche, who was one of the most interesting, whose father was a Lutheran pastor, hated, he believed in Jesus, he believed in Christianity, but he hated the church. And he hated the church because the church had stolen his father. He had no relationship. His dad may have been a preacher, but he wasn't observing the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is when you take your boys and you go hunting with them. Or you take your boys and you play ball with them. You take your sons and you love them. And you tell them you love them. But before you can be sincere when you do that, you've got to push all those worries that you've been contending with all week out of your mind. And he's got to become your focus for just one day. Anybody think that might be helpful in relationships in our society? The Sabbath was the key David discovered that made him a man after God's own heart. Amen.